Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. Today's conversation is with Shannon Salter, the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal in Canada. The CRT is a fascinating example of an online court that seeks to provide access to Canada's legal system in modern and efficient ways. Through their online platform, injured parties can file and serve a complaint in a number of different causes of action, all from their smartphone. In this episode, Shannon explains how she was selected to lead the CRT, what challenges she faced along the way, and what the future of human-centered virtual courts may be. Shannon also described what inspired her to leave her job at a large law firm to work in public service to ensure that underrepresented, underserved parties could access Canada's legal system. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you on. It's an honor to be here. Thanks. So Shannon, I always start out this podcast by asking our guests to introduce themselves. You've got this fascinating backstory and you are in a very cutting edge position right now. Uh, what are you doing right now and how did you rise into the position that you're currently in? Well, I'm the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which is the first online tribunal in Canada. When we opened three and a half years ago, we were the first online tribunal or court anywhere in the world. So administrative tribunals are what your audience in the States would be more familiar with as administrative courts. We decide uh, disputes, usually about specific kinds of issues. And what makes the CRT different is that it's entirely online. So somebody can uh, file their dispute from their smartphone, get free legal information and tools, negotiate, mediate, and even get effectively a court order from their smartphone whenever it works for them. That's incredible. And and how did you, uh, I mean, I, I take it that you didn't enter law school saying, I'm <laughs> the chair of the first online court in Canada, you know, uh, the first online court, what in the Western hemisphere, maybe? Uh, clearly, that's not what you, uh, what you resolved to do. How did you work <laughs> in this position? And how did you rise to be the chair of the court? Yeah, I think like a lot of people, I went into law school thinking that I would do some sort of public service related work, uh, either human rights law or public law one way or the other. And then by the time I graduated from law school, um, like many lawyers, I think I instead decided to go into um, practice at a large law firm. And so that's what I did after, after clerking at uh, one of our courts here in British Columbia. And I did that for a few years before um, deciding that I needed to change gears. It wasn't really um, satisfying me in a number of ways. And so I did a master's degree uh, in law, really focusing on access to justice issues at the University of Toronto. My husband and I took a year off and we went there. Um, we both did these degrees, had our oldest child, which was very ambitious in retrospect. I don't know if I'd recommend doing a master's degree and having a kid the same year, but we got through it. And when I came back to Vancouver, I just really um, wasn't convinced that private practice was going to be the right route for me. And so I moved into doing administrative tribunal work. So what that looks like is sitting on essentially an administrative court as a decision maker, holding hearings, considering evidence, 
um, and writing decisions. And I, I did that as vice chair of the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal for a few years. I also became an adjunct professor at Allard, which is the UBC's Faculty of Law. Um, I was teaching administrative law. I was teaching legal ethics. And then this position came about, and I didn't know very much at all about technology beyond how to use my own computer. And I didn't know anything about online dispute resolution either. But I threw my hat in the in the ring, and we can probably have a whole other discussion about um, the things that stop us from throwing our hats in the ring. But I I did, and I was really excited to to be appointed to the position. And and as you point out, that was. Uh, that was a few years ago now, coming up on six years. And at that time, the legislation to create the tribunal had been passed, but the tribunal itself did not exist. So it was a lot of learning on the ground. And uh, we learned learned a huge amount in the following few years. And of course, we're still learning every day. So let me hit uh, rewind on, on the answer and go back to something you said. And, and, you know, based on what you said, you wanted to go into public service law when you went to law school. Uh, you uh, graduated from law school and you went to a large law firm and it just wasn't cutting it, right? I mean, what you saw there, uh, you know, I could I could assume you didn't see a lot of uh, cases that gave you encouragement with respect to access to justice. Um, and you, you know, after that, you decided to go back into public service in some capacity. What was the back and forth there? Uh, what led you into a big law firm at first and what led you back into public service? I well, first of all, I was um, very excited about being able to work with the folks at this law firm. They were and are fantastic, and I've I've got lots of good friends there. So it's certainly no slight on the law firm I was with. Um, I was given the opportunity to do really interesting work and learn from some of the best lawyers in the province, if not the country. But what it did was give me a line of sight into how our civil justice system works or doesn't work. Um, who has access and who doesn't, who um, has to face extraordinary barriers and who has the resources to overcome those barriers. And I did find that um, quite demoralizing in a lot of ways. You see cases that would persist over sometimes decades, and I'm not even exaggerating, but even um, when they weren't persisting over decades, they were going on for years and years and years uh, in ways that I didn't think were very efficient or were um, really giving access to justice for the people who had to navigate that system. And that's not unique to British Columbia. I think that's a problem everywhere in the world that I go. At the same time, I was doing a lot of pro bono work because the firm I was with um, was very encouraging of pro bono work. And I really maxed out on the amount of pro bono work I could do. And so on one hand, I'd be seeing how even large corporations or some of our corporate clients at the at the firm um, had difficulty navigating the process and the process was very extended and complicated and expensive and inefficient in a lot of ways. And then on the other end, um, helping people with pro bono cases who had even more barriers uh, to accessing justice. I remember one particular case where it was a small claims case um, and a, an elderly woman had saved up to buy a mattress uh, from a local mattress store. And when she bought it, the mattress was clearly defective. Um, there were pictures of, <laughs> that she took quite ingeniously of putting a, a broomstick on the mattress to show how much it was sagging in the middle. Mm. And she had all of these other health problems that 
were really her motivation to save up for this mattress. She had uh, joint issues and all kinds of things. And then even for her to navigate the small claims process on her own was so daunting and overwhelming that she reached out for pro bono help. And it was one of those classic pro bono cases that I took a lot of when I was um, in private practice where you'd be doing a 30 minute um, pro bono summary advice appointment and then realize part of the way into explaining what the person had to do to enforce their rights that there was no way they could possibly do that on their own and so i ended up um taking taking on a lot of those cases um from tip to tail from those summary advice clinics and that was one of them and, and so uh, there were a lot of examples like that where i just saw that the civil justice system really wasn't working for a lot of different folks and uh, wasn't it wasn't clear to me that spending my career trying to navigate it uh, was going to be very satisfying. And Shannon, it dawns on me as you explain this, uh, you know, really tough experience with this elderly person trying to buy something as simple as a mattress, that uh, you're describing a situation in a, in a country, namely Canada, where the court system is presumed to be working very well, right? I mean, this isn't a nation uh, you know, that, that Richard Susskind mentions in his book, like Brazil or India, where there's just this massive overwhelm of, of cases. Um, you know, this is this is Canada where, um, you know, at least conventional wisdom is that uh, the system has the caseload under control. Uh, so this strikes me as very stark. Right. I mean, if this happens in Canada, certainly this is happening tenfold in other um, more impacted uh, courts. Yeah, R Richard talks in his latest book about the massive backlog, backlog of cases in India and other countries um, where it's just collapsing the system onto itself. And that's certainly not the case in Canada, but at the same time, we do have an access to justice crisis here too. We have uh, a shortage of um, of judicial resources. We have long delays before somebody is able to book a trial, um, even on the civil side, or even especially on the civil side. Sometimes those delays can span into years. Uh, we have um, complicated processes, which were developed not through using human-centered design, but rather like many jurisdictions around the world because they met the needs of judicial actors, primarily lawyers and judges. Uh, and all of that creates more complexity and procedural burden for everyday people who are trying to enforce their rights, especially those who cannot afford a lawyer. And of course, speaking about that, there is no legal aid for most civil cases in Canada. And so people are largely left to have to represent themselves. And, and we're seeing that reflected in the number of people who are representing themselves in family law cases, but also generally in civil litigation. Um, Everyday people can't usually afford a lawyer to represent them, uh, given, uh, you know, just given the cost involved. So this is a great uh, backdrop and great segue to the CRT. Um, tell us when you first even heard about the CRT and then uh, uh, you know, how you became interested in it. And then, of course, what it is uh, in, you know, we've already we've kind of talked around it, I think. Um, many of our listeners at this point get some idea that the CRT is an online court. It's a tribunal. Uh, it is, you know, online dispute resolution. But um, talk about how you heard of it and talk about what it does in practice. 
I remember the first time I heard about it, it was only that the legislation had been passed um, and that there was going to be this new online tribunal in, in British Columbia. I don't think there was tons of public information at that point about what this would look like. Um, the brainchild for the CRT was a small group of people within the Ministry of Justice in our province um, called the Dispute Resolution Office. And they were really exploring innovative solutions to some of these access to justice problems that I've been talking about. And the CRT or using online dispute resolution was one of these ideas. So really, I didn't know all that much about it, but I was really excited about the opportunity to try something different uh, and to have a role in helping to craft and shape uh, an access to justice project, because that was really what um, had had inspired me when I was doing my master's degree and also had inspired me to to move into an adjudicative role. Did you think that uh, your role in the CRT would get you such, um, uh, you, you know, kind of worldwide attention here? Or do you think that the CRT would kind of start being viewed as a potential model for other countries, maybe even private institutions uh, to to uh, to model after and to eventually imitate? Yeah. Uh, the short answer is no, not at all. <laughs> I've been uh, really, really lucky. We, we don't have a travel budget. We are funded by taxpayer resources, just as other tribunals and courts are. And so we have to be very, very careful about the way that we spend taxpayer money. So we don't have a travel budget. Nevertheless, other jurisdictions have been very, very curious about what we're doing. And as a result, you know, me and some of my uh, senior staff have been able to share that uh, those learnings and our experience with a wide variety of jurisdictions. And it's really interesting to see the development of the whole idea of online dispute resolution, because when I was appointed in 2014, as I said, there weren't any examples to follow. And in a lot of ways, that was a real gift because it allowed us to, uh, to really create something brand new based on empirical evidence, based on what community legal advocates and the public were telling us. And uh, that was challenging in a lot of ways not to have a path to follow, but it was also a huge opportunity to rethink everything about how we resolve disputes and, and to, to think critically about whether we could create other processes that were going to be better for people using human-centered design. Um, I remember when I was appointed, I think a lot of people thought I'd maybe made a pretty, pretty poor choice. If I had a nickel for every person who told me this was never going to get off the ground, it could never work. I remember uh, the chair of another tribunal telling me, oh, better you than me, and sort of walking away <laughs> from a conversation. <laughs> I think there was a huge amount of skepticism about whether this could exist. And the fact that it does exist is largely a credit to the team that we've put together. We didn't have any staff or tribunal members three and a half years ago, four years ago. It was just me and my uh, North Vancouver home office, which is where I'm speaking to you from, and this team within the Ministry of Justice. And then we were able to build um, person by person a team that now exceeds 100 full-time staff and tribunal members, very much with this culture of innovation and continuous improvement in public service. So they they make this project look good. Um, and no, just to circle back, I, I really had no expectation that uh, this would prove to be the the model or the case study that it has for other jurisdictions. I know I'm speaking to you from Silicon Valley, but what you just described sounds like a startup. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think we've tried to take some of the best things about the startup mentality, but acknowledge that in a public justice context, the, the decision-making and the strategy has to be different, right? Um, a startup at, in Silicon Valley or elsewhere can pick its market segment. It can decide to design and market its projects or products to a particular segment of the population. Um, people who speak English as a first language, people who have post-secondary degrees, people who have an income above a certain amount. Um, and of course, that's not the case if you're designing something for the public justice system. Uh, to do better than the status quo, it has to work for everybody. You have to be um, making sure that you're accounting for the very wide variety of circumstances and needs that people here in this province have. So that creates a lot more complexity and challenge. But at the same time, there are a lot of really great things about the startup culture, particularly the idea that there's not really a place for ego. And I'm generalizing here and maybe being a little idealistic, but the idea that ego is really secondary to figuring out if what you're building works and being really ruthlessly dedicated to user testing, to iterative design, to human-centered design, to understanding the needs of the people who use the thing you're building. And also a culture, I think, within our organization that really promotes ideas and ingenuity and creativity, regardless of whose ideas those are. So we have a very horizontal management structure. Most, <laughs> a lot of our good ideas come from our frontline staff, and they take a lot of pride and ownership over the organization as well, which I think is reflected in some of the statistics that we have uh, from people who've gone through the process. They, they consistently give us really high marks on the way that our staff treat them, um, the professionalism of the organization, as well as the fairness and other things as well, which I can talk to you about. But yeah, I think, I think there is an opportunity to bring the best of that kind of flexible, iterative startup culture into public service design and public innovation. So I want to go back into the origin story. Uh, of course, there's so much there, and you've mentioned human-centered design. I want to get back into that. I want to get back into uh, all of the steps you took to get this off the ground, all of the conversations you had, uh, all of the realizations of pain points that you had. Before that, I want to get to uh, exactly how the CRT operates. And maybe the best way to do that is, is for me to ask you, um, how do uh, residents of the province of British Columbia interact with the CRT when they have some type of legal issue? Uh, take it from there. Like, how do they? You know, what do they do, and how does how does their uh, their their dispute progress through the CRT? Sure, definitely, and I think it's helpful to back up and just explain a little bit about the kinds of problems we can help people solve. Uh, we started with condominium disputes. We had jurisdiction over condominium disputes when we opened in 2016. These are just everyday neighbor problems that people have when they have to live together, but those cases had to go to our superior court to be resolved before we opened our doors. Uh, so we we handled those disputes for about a year before the government here gave us jurisdiction over small claims disputes, $5,000 and under. Um, these are the kind of disputes that would include the mattress case I talked about earlier. And then a year after that, uh, the government announced that we would also be given jurisdiction over most motor vehicle car accident disputes involving a personal injury. And we've been handling those disputes for about a year. And then... A few weeks ago, the government announced its intention 
as part of a, a, a quite extensive auto, sorry, automotive vehicle insurance reform project to give the CRT jurisdiction over almost all motor vehicle personal injury disputes. So quite a wide um, variety of disputes that we handled, but we started off pretty small and then grew and scaled up year over year. Um, and I think that's an important design point because when the government gave us jurisdiction over condominium disputes, it gave us an environment where the pain point was really high for the public to resolve those disputes in court, but the stakes were relatively low. Most of these disputes have to do with people smoking in the hallway or, you know, animals barking next door, common annoying neighbor disputes that are not life or death. They're important to the people who have them, but they're not life or death. So as a design choice, I think that was really smart to start off with these relatively low stakes disputes and scale up. So to answer your question though, for a person in British Columbia with any of those kinds of problems, they would start with the Solution Explorer, which is a very basic form of, of AI, it's called an expert system. And it comes from the idea that it's most useful to give people targeted bits of legal information uh, instead of very broad generalized information about the area of the, the law. Because you know, people who have legal problems are not necessarily setting out to become legal experts, they just want their problem solved. And you can't effectively do that unless you ask questions. Uh, so the system asks questions and then uses the answers to zero into tailored plain language legal information, as well as tools like letters people can send to each other to resolve their dispute. And if that doesn't work, then people can seamlessly file an application for dispute resolution, again, from their phone if they want to. Um, we, take sir, sorry, we take care of serving the other side with that uh, dispute notice. And then when the parties come back into the pro process, so when the respondent responds, uh, the parties are invited to negotiate, which kind of looks like a chat room kind of function. Uh, they can start speaking back and forth and negotiate about how to resolve their dispute. Uh, if that doesn't work, then one of our mediators will step in and help the parties uh, to resolve their dispute by agreement if possible. And anywhere along the line, if people are able to agree, we can take that agreement and turn it into a court order. And then the last step, if people cannot agree at all, and I'm sorry, this is rather uh, protracted, but if people really can't agree, then the dispute is uh, assigned to a tribunal member who considers the relevant evidence and submissions and writes uh, a more traditional court-like decision uh, which is binding on the parties. One of the most fascinating things about this uh, for me is uh, that you could do this on a smartphone, that you could, you don't even need Wi-Fi, right? You can do this on your way to work uh, very quickly. And uh, it, it seems like most of the things you could just do uh, on a point and click basis. Yeah, exactly. And you, you also don't have to use uh, online services on the flip side of it. We also offer mail, telephone, in-person help at 60 government service points across the province. Uh, so human-centered design, I think, leads us to the idea that you don't just put things online because that's inherently good or helpful. You might decide to offer online services because that is the outcome or one of the outcomes from your process of figuring out what your participants need. Um, and, and certainly in a modern society, offering online services is a bit of a no-brainer, but it also leads us to offer 
offline services and to offer culturally competent services and services from people who have been trained in mental health issues and offer plain language and other things that are mostly offline as well. Right. I noticed when I was on the uh, CRT's website that there are maybe five plus uh, languages aside from English that you could click on. You know, so the whole experience is represented in, you know, Punjabi, for example. Um, and I found that to be fascinating as well. I mean, that you, you keep talking about human-centered design, and that strikes me as a, a very foundation of human-centered design. That's right. And so I should back up by saying that right now we just have user guides in all of those languages, but we are prototyping using um, machine learning-based translation products to basically be able to translate the entire web page and the Solution Explorer and, and other things into the main languages spoken in British Columbia out, other than English. And in British Columbia, about 45% of people do speak as a first language, uh, a language other than English. So very much the case that human-centered design requires that we provide services in a way that's accessible for those folks. Uh, so yeah, that's a really good example, I think, of where human-centered design can lead you. So Shannon, I may be speaking as a, a former defense attorney, but you know, one of the first things I thought of um, as I read about the CRT and I read about the work that you're doing, um, you know, not on the access to justice side is, uh, boy, this could be uh, this could open the floodgates to some abuses or frivolous uh, uh, issues filed, frivolous disputes. You know, uh, I think one of the arguments in favor of, of uh, having a, a large, sturdy gate to the legal system, and I certainly um, don't ne don't necessarily agree with this, is that it keeps out a lot of low-level, maybe frivolous, maybe abusive or harassing uh, disputes. To what extent have you experienced that as the chair of the CRT, and and what have you done to mitigate that? And what what is the the rest of the CRT done to mitigate those kinds of abusive uh, disputes filed? Yeah, I, I heard that concern a fair bit before we opened our doors. And my response then was, well, it's better to, if you're going to tear down access to justice barriers, yeah, you're going to allow a lot more people into the, into the system and you need other ways to identify and mitigate abuses of process. But it was really quite a hypothetical concern at that point, and it hasn't really manifested. We've handled over 15,000 disputes. I can only count a very small handful where potentially those disputes could be categorized as vexatious or abuses of process. And there we have statutory provisions and internal processes to, to deal with them. Uh, we have the ability to dismiss or refuse to resolve disputes that would fall into that category. But I think like so many areas in our justice system, we tell ourselves certain stories that are not based on any empirical evidence and we tell ourselves those stories uh, because they are stories that are time honored. <laughs> sort of, I guess one way to think about it is maybe this oral tradition that we have in the law where generation to generation of, of lawyers, we tell ourselves certain things about the justice system, but I worry that we don't always critically examine those stories to see whether they hold up and accurately reflect the experience of, of the people who to whom the justice system belongs. So I'll just give you one example that's related to the idea of abusive process, and that is the example of fee waivers. So almost every jurisdiction has some means by which they can excuse people with a low income from paying court fees. And we're no exception. We, we have a process too. But when we were looking at how to design that process, 
like everything else that we designed, we first looked at what the courts were doing, what other tribunals were doing, and also looked at what the empirical evidence suggested about um, those processes. And so what we found, at least in British Columbia, and this isn't that different across Canada, and there are some, certainly examples of it in your country as well, is that people who want to be excused from relatively modest court fees in British Columbia first have to figure out the right terminology for what it is they're trying to do. Uh, and, and it's not as simple as Googling fee waivers. It is called indigency, uh, which is a bit of a loaded term. But in any event, it's called indigency here in British Columbia. So you've got to figure out that that's actually what you're looking for. Then you can download a 23-page Word document from the court website, which has a number of court forms. You have to figure out which of those apply to you. And one of those forms, at least, requires you to um, swear an affidavit and to append exhibits relating to things like employment skills, education background, dependents, financial information. Then you have to take all of that down to the court registry, uh, file it, appear before a judicial officer called a master in open court, in chambers, so lots of lawyers and clients waiting for their turn as well. You have to explain in open court your situation. If the master grants your, your fee waiver, then you have to file that order in the court registry again and it's at that point that you can take the first step in the thing you're actually trying to do in the court system yeah. all to be excused of roughly what works out to about 135 140 dollars us in court fees and so we looked at that and thought there must be this horrible like epidemic of people just trying to defraud the system of these relatively modest court fees uh, and what we found was that wasn't the case, or at least there's no evidence of it. And in fact, most jurisdictions don't even uh, capture data about the number of fee waivers. So with that in mind, we designed a process where working with community legal advocates who represent people with um, significant barriers to accessing the system. And we developed a, a process where either on paper or on your phone, you can click three buttons if you're on a government assistance program and hit submit and get your fee waiver instantly without providing any documents. And it's not that much difference if you're not on a government assistance program, you just have to enter your household income and number of dependents and click submit. And even though we make it so, so simple, you can literally apply for a fee waiver in under 20 seconds and get it immediately, only 3% of the 15,000 cases we've handled have gone by way of fee waiver. And so I, I apologize for making that such a protracted example, but for me, it's so emblematic of some of the failures in our current system that result from not using human-centered design, not using empirical evidence, I, only I, relying on the way we've always done it before. Yeah, that, that, that's a, an excellent example. And, and um, you know, I think it really illuminates the, the fact that a lot of um, fears of innovation, fears of modernization, uh, are unfounded. They're <laughs> just, as you said, they're just based on these kind of time-honored tropes, uh, urban myths, whatever you want to call them, that just simply um, don't come to fruition when you test them. Um, I want to back up and and go into to kind of the backstory of the CRT. Uh, you have been at the helm of the CRT now. Uh, you know, the, the legislation was passed in 2012. Uh, the CRT came into existence in 2014, so six years now. What are some of the uh, pitfalls that, that the CRT suffered? What are some of the failures that, that you have learned from in the last six years? 
Yeah, so I was appointed in 2014, and then we opened our doors to roughly, oh, actually almost exactly two years later after a pretty rigorous implementation phase. And coming to into this role without a technology background and very much from a legal perspective, I think had some advantages and some disadvantages. I think one of the advantages is that as lawyers, one of the things we're really good at, I think, is being thrown into a complex file in an area where we have no expertise and learning quickly, you know, becoming quite uh, you know, competent in that area. And so I was thrown into the arena of technology development and online dispute resolution and had to really learn on the fly a lot. The other thing I really had to learn on the fly was change management. And I very much underestimated how much that would be part of the role and still is part of the role. Uh, and that was not something that I had had any experience in, but something I really had to learn on the ground as well. So some of the early failures, I think, include that when we started and we were designing at that point, the solution explorer, that expert system I talked about, we really relied, I think, on ourselves as lawyers and also as on the IT team to predict what public behavior would look like, really the opposite of human-centered design. And in some ways, really replicating some of the things that I think are shortcomings of our traditional public justice system. That is that we don't center the experience of the people who have to use justice services. We center the experience of experts like us. And that's exactly what we started out doing. And we realized through some earlier, early observational testing with the Solution Explorer, where we're testing with real people who had condominium problems, how wrong we were about some of those assumptions. And uh, we had to really go back to the drawing board with respect to a few key features. That was a bit of an aha moment, I think, for us and the team, because it said, wow, we're really not great predictors of human behavior. Uh, lawyers and IT professionals are in this anomalous position because of our experience in education that removes us to some degree from the experience of somebody who has an everyday legal problem. And so as a result of that, we've really centered the experience of people who have these uh, legal problems or their advocates in cases where we can't actually get to the people who have problems themselves. And what I mean by that is our testing, user testing methodology now always starts with community legal advocates. Uh, we have a roster of about 60 or 70 legal advocates around the province representing people with a whole variety of different access issues. Um, people who represent clients with low income, who don't speak English as a first language, uh, recent immigrants, people with mental health issues, people with physical disabilities, any circumstance that can make it more challenging to access the, the justice system. And everything we develop has to be tested with them first. And then we make a bunch of changes and then we test with random members of the public and then we test with lawyers as a last step. Um, so I think if I had, there are many, many things that we got wrong and, and probably still get wrong and are constantly having to course correct. But I think the biggest risk mitigation strategy we have is centering the needs of the most vulnerable people within our system. And the second biggest risk mitigation strategy is committing to an agile development process in our operations. And what I mean by that is that we're constantly course correcting, we're constantly improving. We may make loads of mistakes like any other organization on a daily basis, but we don't let them turn into big systemic cultural problems uh, as best we can. 
So what do the next five years look like for the CRT? What's coming up? Well, what's coming up is uh, most pressingly an announcement again by the provincial government a couple of weeks ago that it intends to pass legislation, which among many other things, would give the CRT jurisdiction over virtually all motor vehicle personal injury disputes. So like we've done pretty much every year since we opened, we are embarking again on a year-long implementation project uh, to uh, account for the, this new area of, of dispute. And the first thing we do when we're given a new area of jurisdiction is a gap fit analysis between our existing process and what we expect we'll need to develop for the new kinds of disputes. So we're in the midst of doing that now. And I think beyond that, our goal is really to look as deeply as we can into the data that we collect, the feedback from the public, and constantly be, be fine-tuning and reforming all of our, every aspect of our operation to make sure that we're staying tightly glued to our mandate. And our mandate is found in the Civil Resolution Tribunal Act, is to provide uh, access to fair, efficient, speedy, um, affordable, flexible dispute resolution services for the public. And I think the only way you can really figure out if you're meeting that mandate is by constantly checking back with people, which is one of the reasons we survey people who have gone through the process to ask them about their experience. And it's also a reason that we stay really tightly connected to these community uh, legal advocates I keep mentioning. You mentioned that you you uh, take meetings with a lot of uh, visitors from other jurisdictions, presumably uh, other countries as well, um, and and I'd imagine that they they visit the CRT to study the work that you've done in order to emulate it uh, back home. Uh, have you seen um, you know, even early examples of some folks hearing about, learning about the CRT, and then going home and implementing it in their home province or home country? Yeah, it's kind of funny because we do get visitors here from time to time, but we also get invited to these other jurisdictions uh, to share our experience. And when people want to come to visit Vancouver, I think it's often because they are particularly keen to be in Vancouver because there's not a whole lot to see at the CRT. We all work remotely. Right. Um, well, and so I always have to gently explain to people that uh, well, there's there's actually nowhere to really go unless you want to come to my house and watch me work in my home office, uh, because all of our tribunal members, all of our mediators, most of our staff are all given a smartphone and a, a laptop and they just work from their home, which incidentally has allowed us to recruit some exceptionally talented lawyers to serve as tribunal members uh, and some exceptionally talented mediators because what we're not able to provide in terms of private sector compensation, we can provide in terms of flexibility, goodwill, um, being involved in this really collaborative work environment and, and the ability to do really important work for people every day. Uh, so anyway, that's a bit of an incidental point. But yes, I mean, when we opened our doors three and a half years ago, there were no other examples as I keep laboring that point. But in, in that short time, it's amazing to see this kind of tipping point, I think, happen. And it's something that Richard Susskind talks about in his book as well, especially with, refer with reference to various uh, case studies around the world. But the most notable one I can think of is that uh, Justice Briggs, who's now a, a justice on the UK Supreme Court, uh, came to British Columbia. He he, he actually took <laughs> took the, the risk of coming to see our, our remote operation and, and visited 
uh, with me and then a number of my senior staff and tribunal members to see how the CRT was going to work. And then he, he went back home to England and wrote a report that became known as the Briggs Report and really was the foundation of some of the court reform project that's now a billion pound reform project in the UK. And part of that includes the establishment of an online court based on the CRT, which is obviously quite flattering for our little uh, tribunal here in British Columbia. And then of course, since that time, there are great examples of online dispute resolution being incorporated in a number of states in your country. Um, there's a small claims ODR program in Utah. There are ODR projects that are part of the court system in Michigan, in Nevada, New Mexico. And it, it feels like every couple of weeks or so, I get an alert about a new project somewhere, which is really gratifying. And of course, examples in, in China, Singapore, Australia, and other jurisdictions as well. That's amazing. Uh, you've, you uh, and the CRT have come a long way in the just couple years uh, that, that it's been in, in existence. I think that is a great place to, to wrap it up. Uh, I could talk to you about this for uh, a long time, <laughs> and I'd, I'd love to, to uh, talk to you about it a long, for, for a long time, another point. Uh, you know, I am fascinated by the growth of ODR um, globally, and I think you've got a front row seat, and you've certainly been a, a early, an early actor in the rise of ODR. So thank you for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this fascinating area in the legal industry. It's a pleasure for me as well, and happy to be back anytime. As you can tell, I have a lot to say on the subject, and... Uh, happy to chat anytime. So thanks again for the invitation. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.